0: Hi there! Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I recently had the great pleasure of talking with the very thoughtful and eloquent Avner Ben-Zaken about two of his recent books: one, Cross-Cultural Scientific Exchanges in the Eastern Mediterranean, 1560 to 1660. That came out with Hopkins University Press in 2010. And the other is Reading Hai Ibn Yaksan, A Cross-Cultural History of Autodidacticism. And that came out with Hopkins University Press in 2011. Now, we talked about both of these books um, together because they both represent a single, coherent um, intellectual and scholarly project that Avner is um, embarking on at the moment. He's really interested in, and both books, books explore different aspects of the way that um, science and other forms of knowledge are created through and in cross-cultural exchanges. One of them, um, the Cross-Cultural Scientific Exchanges book, is a study of the ways that early modern science travels among localities and cultures, and it focuses on the context of um, an example of cosmologies, and specifically post-Copernican cosmologies. It's an account of science being constituted through travel and through the kinds of communication and the kinds of practices that travel um, enables. The other book, um, the Autodidacticism book, traces the composition, travels, and translations of a particular book, of Ibn Tufail's Hai Ibn Yatzan, as a way to get at a history of debates about autodidacticism in 12th century Marrakesh, 14th century Barcelona, Renaissance Florence, and 17th century England, And so these are two books. Um, both of them deal with very similar kinds of larger um, problems and questions and issues, but they do it in very different ways. We had a really interesting conversation, and this was a particularly um, enjoyable interview for me because we really had a chance to talk about larger intellectual scholarly um, issues that have to do with writing, about what it can and should look like to do history, to train students in um, historical practice and many other kinds of issues. I got a lot out of it, um, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Avner. Hey,
1: Carla.
2: We're here today at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society to talk with Avner ben Zakin about two of his recent books. One is Cross-Cultural Scientific Exchanges in the Eastern Mediterranean, 1560 to 1660. That came out with Johns Hopkins University Press in 2010. And the other is Reading Hai Ibn Yaksan. Am I pronouncing that right? That's right, yes. Okay, so Reading Hai Ibn Yaksan, a Cross-Cultural History of Autodidacticism. And that also came out with Hopkins. University Press, this time in 2011. Now, we're talking about these together because they form part of a very ambitious, a very fascinating, I think, not just for historians of science, um, but for people interested in the craft of historiography and the craft of uh, really what it is to know about um, any kind of context historically or not, um, given very challenging research um, conditions, uh, p- particular challenges that come up in terms of the kind of training as well um, that we receive as as scholars. They're both really interesting. They're both really, really innovative, and they have big ambitions. So they don't just present case studies for our edification, but Avner's really trying in these pieces to, to revise the way we think about history of science, the way we think about history, what it can look like um, to do history. And you know, to do also the studies of modernity in general. So, um, they're fantastic books, Avner. Congratulations. Um, and thank you, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us.
1: Thank you for the nice words.
2: No, uh, really. I mean, this is uh, really a pleasure to read both of these. And for listeners, um, who may not have had a chance to read both of them, or perhaps this is the first you're hearing of them. Um, I really do recommend thinking of them as, uh, as two parts of a set. And so reading one, you'll definitely want to read the other, um, and I think um, they, they make sense together, and they make sense as um, really creating a conversation um, that enhances both of them individually, even though they stand on their own. So, so thank you.
1: Thank
2: you. So, Avner, could you start us off um, by just saying a little bit about... Of what brought you into this general field of early modern studies or early modern history? And I could ask you also about the history of science, um, but th- these are books that I think even though they are history of science, are really doing work that expands or extends much more broadly into fields that anyone interested in early modern history um, will be interested in. So, so what brought you to early modernity um, in particular?
1: Well, I think, uh, and that's a very general argument that I make about the characters of my books, that uh, people are writing about themselves to a great extent. And uh, uh, looking into cross-cultural es- exchanges in general, and definitely in science, and I'll get you know to the point of science afterwards, but looking into cross-cultural exchanges uh, was, for me, uh, in a way to tell a historical story about myself. My parents immigrated to Israel from Morocco, so I grew up in a multiple uh, house, and uh, I was in one leg here and the other there, and I could see both sides. So I think it's a great perspective of not only uh, criticizing uh, either culture, but also, and that's what you know, I'm interested in, in bringing up some constructive uh, remarks about how these cultures actually collaborate and have things in common. So I get to science, particularly for political reasons, because uh, early on uh, in college, I was uh, very much affiliated with communism and Marxist thought and activity, and I even wrote my MA thesis on the relationship between a Jewish and Arab communist in the communist movement in the Middle East which was published in 2006 as a book but but it's a completely different project but i started off from this perspective to see first how people collaborate but then the other marxist argument that tried to give some kind of a description of a, 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 I think a much fairer description of the rise of the west than other uh, other uh, uh, accounts the variants and others so When we speak about the rise of the West and the decline, uh, of course, uh, uh, it's just a metaphor of the East, uh, uh, I read in so many accounts uh, mentioning or references to the Scientific Revolution as the turning point, as the watershed from which Europe came to be dominant of the world and the rest of the world fell into decline. So I said for political reasons uh, at the beginning, of course, but then I dropped the politics very early on to move to some intellectual curiosities, but I thought that it's a pretty sensitive nerve of world history in general. So uh, I thought that the best way would be to start with uh, locating, searching and locating certain mentionings or documents or books or people while uh, uh, referring to the uh, expansion or dissemination of the copernican revolution very early on after uh, copernicus published his book in 1543 uh, toward the eastern mediterranean and i was very surprised to find you know diverse kinds of documents uh, either miniatures or uh, manuscripts or books or other manuscripts that were actually translations from printed books. But then I discovered that there was a kind of a a remarkable wave of encounters that went back and forth, and and none of them was unilateral. It wasn't one-sided. Like The Europeans, when they came to the East, they weren't really transmitting any knowledge. Actually, that's what I'm saying, that they weren't sure about the the Copernican cosmology, not at all. And they were, they were coming to this to look for additional evidence uh, that would prove that either or, of course, Copernicus is wrong or Tycho is right or vice versa. So I thought that this is a pretty interesting nerve, and uh, if I'll be able to explore that nerve, then it could be a laboratory for much greater uh, story, and that's how I came to the ambition. You mentioned that the books are pretty ambitious, because I'm trying to extrapolate from a very single point in history, a a sensitive nerve, to a greater story concerning world history. Mm
2: -hmm. And one of the things that's so unusual about this process for um, someone reading the books and sort of looking at the trajectory that you've um, set out for yourself is that you, uh, you're very prolific, right? I mean, a book coming out in 2010, 2011, and both of these, or I actually I'll phrase it as a question. What relation did these books um, one and or the other have to the dissertation project? and, in I, I mean I kind of hesitate to ask you about that transformation here because you very clearly have had a much more of a coherent historiographical agenda through which um, this um, set of case studies sort of lets you explore than many um, people you know entering grad school certainly have um, and so what was the process for you moving from the stage of the dissertation into one or both of these works and were there any major transformations at that occasion were there, were there any major rethinkings um, can you talk about that process a little bit for our listeners? Yeah,
1: ac- actually, the first book was cultural scientific exchanges is based on the dissertation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, uh, it is more or less the same as the in the dissertation with you know certain uh, places, especially the, theor- the theoretical stuff, in which I try to make it much more uh, appealing and not just giving an account of uh, a few cases. Uh, in some of the cases, I even substantiated with additional uh, either documents or arguments that I received along the process of presenting the papers or presenting the chapters and having uh, colleagues who uh, read it and gave their own uh, valuable uh, of course input. So the first book is actually based on the dissertation. The second book has nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. Not at all. So it was a completely new project uh, that I actually uh, handled at the term at the time when I had the uh, when I was the Society of Fellows mm-hmm. and first book was completed pretty early a year after I finished my uh, my uh, PhD my uh, grad school and I moved on, moved in the next project pretty early and started working on it and the connection the interesting thing is that is the the last chapter of uh, this fourth chapter of uh, the first book mentions uh, an astronomer by by the name John uh, Gribbs. Uh, from Oxford, and when I was uh, investigating his uh, his travels, I discovered that to a certain time period, he traveled with another English uh, scholar, uh, Edward Pocock. And uh, I remember sitting at the Clark Library, and I just you know I called all the books of Pocock, and I got first editions there. Yes, and I got his translation, Philosophus Autodidacticus of uh, of a piece that I was pretty familiar with from the 12th century of uh, Hayy Ben Yaxan. So I said this is pretty interesting because it translate what I thought is an empirical philosophical text from medieval time in a time period when I knew that all the experimental uh, 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 all the debate over experimentalism took place in Oxford the place of publication and I said once I'll finish this dissertation, this is my next project. so that's what I did and uh, and there is one particular uh, difference between the two books which I mentioned in the introduction of reading High Benzan in which I say that the first book is on one century and in one more or less particular area, whereas the second book goes along something like five centuries. Like we start with the 12th century, and it ends with the uh, 17th century. And it's it moves from Marrakesh to Barcelona to Florence uh, to Oxford. And uh, so th- that was much uh, um, challenging, I would say, methodological uh, 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 challenge in general because it was very hard for me to first to move from one chapter to the other, from one investigation to the other. It took me something like cognitively speaking, something like two months to, to move or to understand what I'm getting into. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and afterwards, I had to put them in a, some kind of a sequence uh, that would make sense. After all, we are looking into the same manuscript, Hay mm-hmm. Ben uh, and I'm looking for its circulation across Europe in the early modern time, late medieval early modern time, and I'm giving a very deep contextual, local description of its reception, reading, and so on. And yet we have very fragmented account. So then I suggested in the introduction uh, um, uh, to use a, a kind of a, a perception for modern art, visual art, that is called the the art of sampling, in which artists put uh, in sequence. Uh, various representations of the same object. So I thought that maybe we can do the same uh, with that case and call it historical sampling. So in this sense, it's pretty different than the early book. Mm
2: -hmm. It's interesting that you're bringing up the the power of or the idea of historical sampling. Let's see, I'm kind of hearing myself a little bit here, so I'm going to turn off. Ah, and that's better. Um, it's interesting okay. that you're bringing up the idea of historical sampling mm-hmm. because one of the um, that that was one of the fascinating historiographical things about that book for me. And we'll get there um, in the course of our conversation. But the first thing that came to my mind was electronic music and sampling in that sense. Uh-huh. Right. So when exactly. I, when I uh, exactly. read that, well, that's how it
1: started. Yes. that's how it started with DJs in the eighties, and that... then now we have a video artist and. A... In visual art we have historical something definitely
2: that's right I mean I think in a lot of ways the, the craft of the historian is the the art of the DJ right and this sort of telling the <laughs> larger narrative with quotation and um, citation and, and repetition of themes and so it's um, it's really fun actually to read about that in the context of the read, reading Hayev Nyaktsan book but okay so both of these books. Um, represent parts of a coherent intellectual project in progress. And that's why we're talking about them together um, as sort of a, a bit of a break from the New Books Network interviews typically. And it's actually quite a, a, an exciting break and quite a pleasant break. Um, and it's, it's rare to have this opportunity. Um, but they're both um, parts of a broader intellectual project. So I'd like for a moment or for several moments to talk a little bit about the contours of that project and the sort of the major components of that project that really come up in the context of both books, because I know it's something that seems important to you as a writer and came across as very important as a reader. Okay, so both books are rooted in showing how, um, or really one of the books in particular, the first book, showing how, as you mentioned before, um, briefly, uh, this isn't just about science from one place or knowledge or an object, so let's say in the second book, from one place being transmitted to another place. This is really about the construction of knowledge and the creation of knowledge, be it scientific knowledge, be, be it knowledge um, about autodidacticism and the ideas of the self um, being created through travel. Through circulation and through the kind of translation and dialogue that that circulation exchange um, enables, right? Um, Can you what what made you um, so interested in this particular set of issues? Because um, can can you talk a little bit about this broader set of issues? Because it's not necessarily the case that someone interested in you know science in early modernity would necessarily go here. It's it's a very particular um, and very clear historiographical project that both of these books are part of. So can you talk about that um, a little bit for our listeners?
1: Well, I, I think that uh, uh, the claims of the, war of the West's prominence uh, were based on a few fundamental principles in relation, of course, to the scientific revolution. One of them was, of course, the Copernican cosmology, and I thought that maybe if I'll be able to elaborate and to perform the complex negotiations that were cross-cultural negotiations from both sides that were over the Copernican uh, uh, cosmology or revolution, then we'll have a way more nuanced uh, account of what happened at that time period. And uh, the second one was auto-didacticism because I th- At the beginning, I thought it's experimentalism, but it's not really experimentalism. Mm -hmm. It's experimentalism, it's one uh, derivative, I would say, of autodidacticism, which is the claim of uh, first-hand experience to be better than any accumulated, transmitted knowledge from the past. This is a pretty radical argument, and uh, the West uh, appropriated uh, these uh, fundamental arguments to its Uh, history and of course I used it as a a tool in order to argue to claim uh, its prominence but what I wanted to show in both books that in two fundamental concepts were actually negotiated in a cross-cultural exchange or exchanges and I would add to it maybe uh, for the future the question of print culture which is something that I would really like in the future a project I would really like to take uh, in order to complete uh, uh, this uh, trilogy. Uh, I think it's going to be a trilogy.
2: Oh, really? Okay. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, I'll look forward to that and I will look forward to talking mm-hmm. with you about the third one. The importance of print culture actually does um, come up in, in both books to some extent, but certainly in the, um, the first one. The first one, yeah, exactly. Okay, so this idea of cross-cultural exchange, and we'll, we'll continue to talk about this because um, there are various aspects of this that remain um, unpackable and really important, but one of the things here um, that it seems to me you're trying to do is to, at least from a reader's perspective, to reframe how we think about, conceptualize, and do research on the notion of a local culture, right? I mean in order to have cross cultural exchange we need to be able to however instrumentally identify and say something about a local culture so what does it mean what does a local culture mean for you um let's sort of start start on that what what does that look like what does that mean how do you think about well, well, that
1: th- that's a very good question because i i try to place myself in between the two historiographical trends of, on the one hand, the old history of ideas that uh, um, try to uh, account to the floating of ideas uh, in the air with nobody touching them or having no cultural context, something really problematic. But I thought that the greatest virtue of such history was that it was way more prismatic than any uh, histories, local histories that we had in the recent, let's say, Thirty years now, the biggest problem for me uh, was that um, uh, widely historians uh, explored the cultural context and the practices in a certain location in order to recover from them, to project from them ideas to recover structures of ideas structures of society, and of course uh, at the end they uh, they produced uh, incredible accounts on uh, how science was culturally constructed, uh, especially in Europe. But for me, it was a big problem because once you're investigating, exploring deeply into into one culture, at the same time, you're actually uh, detaching this uh, location, this culture from other adjacent uh, cultures. And the result was that we ended up with what I called monadic cultures that exist in and of themselves, and and, the earliest, I said, even cultures that supposedly had nothing to do with each other. And somebody, and I hope that in the future, historians will look into this problem uh, and and they will try to put them together to look for connections between them. So for me, cultural, uh, local culture cannot really produce its own values, cannot really produce its own ideas, cannot really produce uh, anything uh, really stimulating that would revolutionize uh, that culture. It has to be enriched from the outside, uh, fertilized from the outside. And that's why I say that I'm, I'm not really interested in cultural centers. I believe that cultural centers that only circulate Um, ready or accumulated knowledge, whereas the margins of cultures, where one margin of one culture overlaps with the margin of other culture, creates um, some kind of what I call the mutually embraced zone in which people exchange freely with no hegemonic or relations of power. And eventually, those ideas are uh, traveling from the margins to the centers and stimulate new ideas about science, about culture, about politics.
2: So how do you, just to to ask you to expand a little bit about something that you just said, Um, one of the, I mean, you do talk about these zones of mutual exchange here, and it's very much, um, it will remind readers who are familiar with, for example, Gallison's notions of trading zones and um, other work on circulation of knowledge, and this is a very, very important um, very pathbreaking part of our historiography right now, but how do you think about um, power relations in these zones? Because as as um, if we look at other kinds of frontier history, right? American history, um, uh, history of the American West. One of the critiques of the kind of historiography that posited zones of exchange not in the context of the history of science, but in other kinds of histories of the frontier, one of the critiques has been in the past that presenting the story as one of mutual exchange and benefit seems to be somewhat, um, so it just doesn't, perhaps take seriously the very real issues Mm -hmm. of um unequal power dynamics and um you know moments of um, rupture moments of tension within these kinds of exchanges so can you speak a little bit to how you see those issues in the context of these cases that you're working on here
1: yes definitely i think that the the greatest problem with uh, dealing with uh, cross-cultural exchanges in the early modern times. It's not We're not only speaking about different cultures. We are talking about cultures that were identified with certain paradigms. So we have incommensurability of paradigms and cultures at that time period. Mm-hmm. So when we see, when we locate some kind of uh, transmission, uh, uh, circulation, or exchange of ideas. It's not only an exchange between cultures, but between also different, completely different set of concepts regarding science. Now, the early modern time, uh, I think, uh, is not, uh, at least until the 16th, uh, the 17th century, it's not the time where we had very clear relations of power between East and West. I think that those relations of powers, those notions, or at least consciousness of hegemony was still negotiated at that time period. I would definitely say that you're right in cases of uh, a frontier history after the Industrial Revolution, definitely you're right. We have uh, plenty of cases in which uh, the hegemonic uh, culture or power came and dictated its own values and uh, scientific thought and uh, transformed politics and society. But in the 16th century, that's what I wanted to say. The 16th century, and that's why it's 16th, 17th century, that's why it's so fascinating. It was all still under negotiation. And if it was still under negotiation, we might, by exploring that time period, also find divisions uh, in which we have a completely, a, a complete cultural or a consciousness shift of uh, hegemony between East and West. But it, uh, I cannot really say that until 1650 or something like that, that in either side, either Europeans or Middle Easterns, would have said clearly that they know that their culture are rising or in decline.
2: So when you say um, in the book that you mean these projects to be um, to inform how we think about modernity as well, not just history of science, but you do mention in here that you're also trying to contribute to um, the way we understand the history of modernity. Is this part of um, what you mean by that? Is this um- definitely,
1: mm-hmm. definitely? I think that in the in the second book, in reading Highbin Yaksan, it's much more clear because we start. I start with a very modern question: What would you do in an isolated? Uh, a desert island right. and this is a very uh, modern uh, I would say question in contemporary culture because it tells us let let's strip ourselves from all the values all the uh, false needs all the um, um, a, a, a hegemonic consciousness that somehow was along you know a social process was inserted into our minds and let's be the self, the true self, uh, uh, look for the true self uh, inside of us. So I said this is a really modern question. Mm -hmm. So, but this really modern question uh, was born in a certain time period. And it was not born only because of, you know, uh, different processes uh, within Europe, but also because we have so many incidents in which people actually defied authority, defied establishment, and they used different tools, different arguments, different books, and what I suggest that they refer to this book, to reading in ben in order to make their claims against the establishment way much, more, uh, much more effective. So, to a great extent, we have, in the early modern time, a shift between the icons of, of wisdom, whereas in the medieval time, it was the old man who accumulated knowledge, and at the end of his life, he can transfer this knowledge to uh, younger generations, the modern icon of wisdom and of science becomes a little boy. And the little boy has very fresh imprints in his mind. Uh, He uses firsthand experience. He's not, you know, referring to any prejudice or tradition or anything that comes from the past, and it can really give birth to new ideas. This is modernity. But what I'm saying is that this principle of modernity, we can find it in a fabulous, brilliant, uh, philosophical tale from the, from the 12th century Marrakesh. And it's not only that we can find it there, we can trace the way this book circulated into Europe, to all the very important stations, historical stations, in which these notions, these liberal notions of modernity, were actually constructed. And of course, I go to Barcelona to speak about education, and then from there we move to Florence. And of course, um, Pico della Mirandola for me was the, maybe the first, the first person, the first intellectual to make a, a, a bold arguments. A, 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 um, uh, referring to uh, liberal notions of uh, uh, letting people shape their own destiny, that experience in life is what really it was really what really shapes our not only beliefs even our the most perverted, would say habits. So experience that's the question. And later on, of course, we have in Oxford the question of experience and of first-hand experience completely incorporated into scientific thought and uh, philosophy of science with Robert Boyle and the final, of course, station, the person who wraps everything up, uh, John Locke.
2: Great. Thank you, Avner. Now, I I want to ask you about, um, because you brought up the issue of um, defying authority, right? And then this issue as it speaks to the trans- translations and transitions that we see in the um, reading high Ibn yaqtan book, which brings us into um, a way that perhaps you might be trying to defy authority here in, in your <laughs> comments. I, and I say that as a good thing. I, I, I really mean that as, as a good thing. I think this is one of the contributions you're trying to make. Um, and this is the... Um, the the issue that you bring up in the introductory matter, really, of both books, and this is the issue of a concern with the way that academic training leads historians to, to learn about and study yes. local cultures. And so what I'd really love um, to hear a little bit about, um, or, or lots about, um, is if you could talk about that set of issues, and, and also if we could talk about how your concern with these shapes your own research methodology, um, which is very, it, the research involved um, in doing these books is, must, is astounding for mm-hmm. a reader. So you. can you talk about these two issues, both the issue of training and then how this um, shapes your own research methodology?
1: Well, definitely. I think that you made a very uh, uh, brilliant comment about my uh, psychological structure. You're definitely <laughs> right that I'm trying to project my own uh, defiance of authority, and my own uh, various problems with establishments uh, to the, uh, of course, historical theme that I try to to explore. So, the scientific claim of history is, um, I'm not getting, of course, to the question, you know, how can we bring our account as closer to the truth as possible. That's not, that's a an completely another issue. But there's one issue which is, I think, a, a very important, which is the structure of a discipline that what I think eventually shapes and, uh, and, uh, and give direction to the different efforts to explore historical truth. So the structure, of course, it's a very traditional structure. I would even say it's a clear reflection of the rise of the nation-state. So we have Chinese science, as you know, we have Islamic science, we have German science, we have French science, we have Italian science, we have this kind of vulcanization of scientific thought. But is it true, like, can we really speak about science in this kind of terms? Maybe because we have these fields, eventually we train scholars to focus only on sources from, these, from their fields, from their subfields, and eventually creating a structure of, a, of, a, of a historical production that eventually perpetuates the same problems from the past. What we really need here is just to cross the disciplines. So when I claim uh, to write a, a cross-cultural history in both books, I, there was another implied claim in that, which is to cross disciplines. I'm not intended, and you see it in my, in my, I'm not even calling it a research, investigations. I'm not willing to let any boundary, disciplinary boundary or culture to stop me from continuing on exploring questions that I think intuitively, I think are pertinent to, our, to my investigations. So in many cases, by the way, I came or reached fields or subfields that I had nothing uh, to do with. I knew nothing about it, so the in the pro, in the process of this investigation, I had to understand and to read the all historiography of this subfield, and to understand what are the claims and to understand what's going on there. So you see in these books that I'm moving and I'm crossing actually not cultures but actually disciplines. Mm-hmm. And this is what really what really uh, fascinates me, and uh, eventually, you know, um, the the shortcoming of that is that you're entering each time you're entering into a field where people are uh, uh, experts of, so they feel a bit uncomfortable that you're coming from a different field, and you have not only new claims but even bold claims about their field, so. Uh, It depends. In certain places, I had very fruitful exchanges with those scholars. In other places, they were pretty reluctant uh, to accept this kind of ideas. But of course, they're guarding, uh, they're the the gatekeepers of their disciplines and they won't let anyone to break this fence. But what I wanted to do in this research, speaking particularly about the methodology, it's to break disciplinary fences. And maybe in the future, in... uh, in, uh, history departments all over the world the world people would start seriously thinking about interdisciplinarity in the sense of training students to, to move from one side to the other I, I trained myself like that of course and I had a fabulous uh, a dissertation committee that each one of them actually covered an ang- angle in the in my research culturally and the uh, thematically speaking, but um, I think it should be much more uh, structured. Students should feel much more um, encouraged uh, to cross these kind of, uh, of boundaries. Mm-hmm.
2: Can you imagine, um, in your ideal world here, and so I know one of the themes um, of the book, certainly the, um, the reading um, Hayy ibn Yaqzan book is utopia, right? Um, and so as we're talking about um, ideal worlds, what, um, d- just to hear a little bit about this, in your ideal world, what does that kind of training, let's say for a graduate student, look like?
1: Well, it has to be, speaking about autodidacticism, it has to come from the student himself, Mm-hmm. I I find it very hard, uh, of course, to think about the idea that it would be a structure that would superimpose on a student to be interdisciplinary. So it has to come from the student himself. He has to be way more curious uh, than just in his uh, own particular field. Uh, he shouldn't be, and that's that's a key key issue. He shouldn't be afraid from the uncertainty of getting into new fields, new bodies of knowledge. It's fun, just fun to acquire and to take over one body of knowledge after the other. I was shocked. I never speak about what I know. It's, for me, it's useless. I always, you know, I find it as a great opportunity to write another paper, a new paper. It's very uh, stressing, I have to say, especially in the last year. But, uh, but uh, it's a great pleasure to, to learn something, something new. And I think that uh, this is the key issue in being a historian. It's not that you produce history. Uh, It's not that you're only uh, teaching history. You have a great opportunity to study. For me, it's a never-ending process of learning and studying maybe to the rest of your life.
2: Great. And, and I think mentioning um, one of the words you just mentioned or you just used, fear, I think is key here. Um, I think sort of taking some of the, the culture of fear out of uh, historical training might, might go a long way toward manifesting the kinds of conditions that um, you're talking about. Okay, so so we've talked about training, but one of the things that speaks directly to what you're doing here um, really takes these issues and pushes them into your own practice. Now, both books range across a phenomenal... Number of languages, of kinds of literature, of disciplinary um, contexts. Can you say a little bit about um, either in the, pro- in the for the process of either book, whichever you want to talk about, or if you feel that it's a more general conversation, we, we can do that as well. Your own research process for this. I mean, there there are a tremendous number of manuscripts involved, lots of different archives. What was it like to research um, to research these books?
1: Was it torture? <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. I'm. I, I'd say that uh, in the process of investigating, uh, I have to be completely possessed by the by the theme, by the personas that I'm I'm looking at. So it's a very very intensive uh, time period. It takes you know four or five months until I finish one case. So uh, being possessed, it's not you know I'm not saying it uh, just to describe a, a mental situation. I think it 's the great it 's the best way of doing this kind of research because eventually you develop a, a kind of, of a intuitive uh, perception of that time period and you try to pull the strings and the strings would be of course either text either you know comment of somebody and to look into it and to see what's the connection between that comment or that title or this word with other words and it leads you to new uh, directions uh, to explore new horizons. But it's mostly, it, it's mostly an intuitive effort. And uh, what, what's, what's important for me more than anything else is to ask the right questions. And they have to be very particular questions. Very, very particular questions. That's, you start off your project, your investigation from a very particular question regarding a date or a person. And from that, and that the particular question has to do, of course, with abnormality, because I'm doing microhistory, and we're looking for the abnormal things, either you know processes, persons, events, titles, and this kind of of things. And by exploring this a particular question of an abnormal case, we actually are able to um, um, uh, to reconstruct a, a fascinating. Very marginal incident, and the biggest problem, of course, is that how we extrapolate from that into a greater story or a big, uh, a big, uh, a big account. My uh, uh, my way of doing that was uh, was twofold. First, always speak about the limits uh, of your sources, uh, and uh, and try to describe and to understand the limits of your sources, and then. When you extrapolate, you have to counterpose what you see with other things around you and to look for some kind of a structural connection or an analogous connection between your story and other structures. It could be, of course, political structures, as we saw uh, with the story of Pico della Mirandola, and it could be, of course, social, it could be educational, it could be either or, but you should look in your surroundings. Now, in... To a great extent, what I do, it's a kind of a morphology. Okay, it's very hard to. I do not believe, you know, differently than some other microhistorians, that you can really draw a causality in morphology. The best we can do is to put uh, forms or incidents or uh, structures next to each other and let you, the reader, decide whether there is a connection here. It's very hard. It's almost impossible to actually. A reconstruct an agency that caused this and that. But if you put a kind of array a of structures, text, ideas, people that will not only have similar relations, it's not comparative history, but we're actually in, in personal contact, we're next to each other, we're doing the same things, we're in relationship, then we're able to, to make a much, I think, richer account of those incidents.
2: Now, listeners, um, hearing your account of your own process and your own historiographical commitments, and especially um, the the comments on microhistory and that kind of methodology, many listeners, I'm sure, will immediately be thinking of Carlo Ginsburg's work, um, and to some extent, Natalie Zeman Davis. I mean, it, it very there are um, kind of scents of what you're saying that are very much part of. Um, those those two authors' works as well. At, bec- as somebody who's very self conscious and very s- reflective and self reflexive about your own contribution to historiographical practice and methodology, were there particular was there a particular work or a particular author or, or authors who you found um, especially inspiring in shaping your own methodology?
1: Well, I was very lucky, uh, I am very lucky to be uh, in touch and in exchange with both with Carlo Ginsburg and Natalie Simon-Davis, but I was a student of Carlo in one of his seminars, and I think that the all uh, methodology or the way or my version to microhistory uh, started off definitely in his seminar that was really inspiring, stressing, uh, moving, and uh, to these days, I definitely owe, owe Carlo a great depth in in uh, helping me develop uh, this kind of uh, approach to historiography. So, of course, there's, you know, The, um, the Cheese and the Worms, which is a great book, uh, a famous one, everybody read it. But, uh, uh, and The Return of Martin Gere with, uh, with Natalie. Uh, uh, but I wasn't, I'm, I don't think that there is a particular text that inspired me. It's not a particular text. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's more a methodology. It's more an argument. It's more of a, a seeing people the way they think and trying to understand the way they, th- they think and to see how this kind of way of thinking can eventually uh, benefit your own work. I cannot speak about text, but I can definitely uh, speak about structures of thinking. That I was exposed to, luckily, very luckily, I would say, and uh, that helped me uh, shape my uh, my uh, methodology.
2: Mm-hmm. Great. Now we we don't have much time to talk about the particulars of both books, and there there's a ton of material in both books that's fascinating um, that we won't get to. But I want to just very briefly. Um, move, even if it's just a step into each one of them in the remaining time that we have. Now, cross-cultural scientific exchanges in the Eastern Mediterranean, 1560 to 1660, um, as we've already mentioned, this is a study of the ways that early modern science, sort of broadly conceived, traveled among localities and cultures. And, and you focus on the example of um, Copernicanism and post-Copernican cosmologies and, and the ways that these actually get created through this travel. Now it's it's an account, as we've mentioned of the science really being constituted by those travels. Now, can you we, we've talked already about uh, you've talked a little bit about um, your move from a story about incommensurability to one of um, mutually embraced zones. We've talked about um, sort of the importance of circulation here. Um, one of the things that I'd love to hear about, though, speaks to your comments on Um, the importance of the margins, right, the importance of the abnormal. And and this is very much, it seems from a reader's Mm. perspective, of a piece with another um, claim that you make in this particular book, which is that um, scientific ideas are not propagated by intellectual networks and agents and agendas, but rather by mundane ones. And so this really, this this claim of the importance of the mundane networks, this importance of mundane networks of contact, really seems to be of a piece with this emphasis on the on the margins and perhaps the, the abnormal um, that you're also projecting. Can you talk about that and, and perhaps um, in in the context of talking about that, um, maybe specifically using as an example from this book and sort of um, as a way of showing how those mundane um, networks of contact are important?
1: Okay, uh, well... I haven't seen, at even once, an intention to transmit certain idea. Uh, you have an intention in a place where you have relations to power. Somebody who knows that he has a very good idea, that worthwhile, you worthwhile know, to transfer it to somebody that might benefit from that idea. But what I saw, it's just random encounters with objects, not with ideas. I don't believe in ideas. They exist... Up there, I never touched an idea. But I saw text, and I saw manuscripts, and I saw uh, paintings. And people ran across uh, these material objects. And the way they encountered that objects, those objects was pretty random. And I say to myself, well, nobody had an intellectual agenda to propagate this notion. But actually, these objects were circulated within social economic networks, cross-cultural networks, as, you know, gifts or uh, or looted on boats or uh, just, you know, circulated by travelers who who exchange the objects that exchange with no intention at all, hence from one person from one culture to the other one. So what fascinated me is that if that's right, I said that nobody had an intention to propagate the Copernican Revolution. Nobody wanted, really, to say, listen, we have a, a, a revolution in cosmology, and you better listen to this revolution and let us give you the gist of that cosmology. That's not what happened. And the indication from this conclusion is that we do not really see any relation, relations of power at that time period. It definitely happens, as I conclude, of course, at the end, and I start with the in the introduction with that story. From the 1660 onward, we see a clear shift in this perception. People know that there is a revolution. People know that there, is, there are better ideas. People know that Europe was completely shocked by new cosmology, and you better update your own perception of, of the world, of the universe, but not until 1660 or so.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Great. Now, in the um, process of the story that you're telling us, which begins um, with an absolutely beautiful story of um ad Muhammad ibn Maruf, right? Yeah. Right. Um, and, and an observatory that he built for Ottoman Sultan Murad III. Um, you take us into a really beautiful illustration from um, the Shahin Shahnama. Shem- to,
1: Chandra, Shem- yes. Chandra, right,
2: to set out what may have been the work done at the Ottoman Observatory. And and I say this not to sort of ask you to elaborate on this, but rather to point out for listeners that the um, your discussion of the importance of particular images and objects and books, this isn't just a, a sort of general claim that you're making, this very much... Um, shapes the fabric and the structure of the story that you're telling and of the research methodology um, that you're using. So, this really does um, uh, the importance of book collecting in this story, the importance of sort of travels and the study of languages and dictionaries to this story um, is very much um, part of the, the larger story of the travels of post Copernicanism across many different cultures. And it's very fascinating. Um, now one of the things that comes up in this book, that's perhaps going to be surprising for many readers, certainly was surprising to me. And that segues us into a brief discussion of the second book. And you can sort of tell how much I'm skipping over here, (laughs) um, is the, the importance of Sufism, um, to early modern science and knowledge in a global context. Now this was extraordinarily, um, interesting in the first book and it's also something that comes up again right from the beginning of the second book can you speak a little bit to that mm-hmm. and in the context of either or both books so however whatever examples from either or both books you want to use to, to discuss that
1: okay maybe it will give me the opportunity to speak about one of my next projects too Great. so yeah so what I found in the in the first book at the fifth chapter uh, that the guy who translated this uh, astronomical work of Noel Duré uh, was, uh, in, and I discovered that only by reading his introduction and, uh, and understanding the usage of metaphors in his title, the title he chose for his, for his translation, that he was actually a Sufi, or somehow affiliated with Sufism. And I thought, it's worthwhile to elaborate on the philosophical arguments that are pertinent to the question of the scientific revolution from the vantage point of this kind of uh, mystical thought. So, of course, uh, what uh, comes to mind uh, first, and uh, I hope that I performed it, uh, demonstrated it in the text itself, that uh, people are not trying to save this phenomena in mysticism as you know, the traditional Aristotelian natural philosophy, they are not trying to describe what they see. What they're looking for, is what is actually behind uh, uh, the scene, to unveil nature. But they're not only trying to unveil nature, of course, this project of unveiling the truth, unveiling society, unveiling the self, unveiling God. You know, it has uh, various dimensions, but the notion or the structure of this notion... That there is a practice by which one can unveil, or overcome, if you want, his senses can unveil this uh, screen of uh, uh, that separates us from the forces of nature, from the true uh, motion of the planets. In the case of this fifth book, so this structure become a, a very uh, subversive in uh, in at that time period, especially among. Uh, Uh, um, uh, philosophers and scientists were completely uh, uh, Aristotelians Uh, now as for the second book we have the same story with uh, the first chapter where uh, I'm trying to understand why would anybody definitely a philosopher in the 12th century write such a radical tale make such a radical argument that a little boy that was spontaneously generated on an island without language, without genetic code, without parents, without books, only through trial and error was able to establish the principles of physics. And only through observations he could understand the structure of the universe and then uh, make uh, metaphysical deductions and become the greatest philosopher of all. So... That was, for me, it's not, there's no way it's only a philosophical tale. It's not history of it is. It's actually corresponding with something around him. And what I suggested, as in the title of that chapter, that he tried actually to tame the mystics and to tell the Sufis, okay, guys, you're right. First-hand experience is very much important, but you have to do it according to the philosophical procedure. uh, uh, procedure. You have to go through the procedure to the hierarchy of disciplines in order, indeed, you're right, in order to discover yourself what is the truth and not to receive it, you know, uh, uh, from uh, a third side. Uh, But in both cases, I think that this is my own uh, contribution to a, a much larger project that started maybe with Francis Yates. Uh, with the question of hermeticism in which she tried to show that uh, she showed actually that uh, 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 irrational mystical ideas such as from hermeticism not only hindered hindered the, the progress of science but actually was the engine behind the scientific revolution because finally people started asking questions about what is beyond natural phenomena. What is the mechanism that makes a, a natural phenomena? And that's what brings me, you know, to the third, uh, to the next project that I'm working on now. Uh, one of my projects. I just presented a, a paper on that project in Florence in the EUI on uh, on on May, and I I looked into another manuscript, another uh, piece from the medieval Andalusia. It's called the Picatrix. It's a famous handbook for recipes, for magic, and I just wanted to see who read it in the Renaissance. Uh, how did they read it? What exactly they appropriated from it? What did they do with that? And uh, instead of looking on this book as only um, a book of recipes, I tried to show that the uh, foundations or the counters of the philosophy of science of those central figures like uh, Marcello Ficino and uh, Cornelius Agrippa and Tommaso Campanella. That the three of them, to my, uh, uh, to my, uh, to my view, uh, the three of them played central role in transforming uh, science, or I would say, in in making the magical scientific revolution. And the the contest that the Picatrix gave to these thinkers was to start thinking about the act. Uh, acting at a distance, the agency that goes in between bodies and creates motion in a much more physical way. Whereas, you know, mystics thought about this agency as a spiritual agency. They started talking about it as a spiritual and physical agency, what we call today, of course, forces, radiance, energy, and so on. But what they did, and that was a uh, fascinating, they tried to embody that. In making arguments about the sun waves and saying like these spiritual, these spiritual uh, physical entities, these forces, let's say electromagnetic forces, just you know to make it clear to to our uh, listeners, uh, behave or act, propagate the same way as the sun waves. and uh, that was a great contribution. So what I tried to do is to show that Yet's argument were clearly brilliant and she transformed completely the field. But what is left from her account is that we know that only the uh, corpus hermeticum, only the hermeticism, played the role in transforming uh, science into a science that looks to unveil phenomena and to look for forces. I want to say that it's not only that. We have also other uh, uh, works important works, key works, that those people actually read, and they didn't come from neither ancient Greek, uh, ancient uh, Greek-Egyptian uh, 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 tradition, but actually from uh, an Arabic-Andalusian uh, uh, culture.
2: Okay, thank you. And this is, um, there are lots of other questions that I can give you about this second book, but I, this is actually a perfect place for us to, I think, wrap up. And so rather than doing that, um, I think this is a good opportunity for us to bring this together. Um, I want to, uh, there's a ton of material that we didn't have a chance to talk about. And I want to just um, do two things now. First, mention something to our listeners and also ask you um, if there's anything you want to mention. And so first, uh, just for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book, though we've been talking a lot about the um, very Important and interesting, um, larger historiographical issues that inform a lot of the cases we've been talking about as ways to um, or t- talking using to talk about these issues. The books themselves are full of very, very detailed, very careful readings of many texts in Hebrew, in Arabic, in Persian, in Latin, in European languages, in English, um, that really enrich our our Bibliography, our sort of in, in intellectual bibliography of texts that we think about when we think about what's relevant to understanding the global history of science, and so not only are there um, account or discussions of these very important general issues, um, but there are also discussions that I found completely fascinating about um, studies of classical Hebrew texts um, and how they were part of really both stories in different ways um, that open up. And these are just this is just one example among many of really detailed readings in here, I think that open up tons of future directions um, for uh, for the history of science in very specific ways that either Avner you may want to follow up on in future books. Um, but even if not, I think these open up um, lots of opportunities for future scholars as well who want to pick up on any of these individual, like I said, very fascinating and very, very specific. And well-grounded and grounded in very, very detailed research um, cases that you are um, offering to us, I think, is a gift here. So so thank you for that. And I want to make sure that that's clear for our listeners, even though we didn't have a chance to talk about um, some of these really fascinating, very detailed um, cases in the course of our conversation. Now, speaking of things that we didn't have a chance to talk about, um, Avner, is there anything in particular, and, and there's tons that we didn't um, that we didn't get to, but is there anything about either one of these books, about both books, um, that you want to make sure to mention for listeners that we may ha- not have had a chance to get to in the course of our conversation?
1: I'll, um, I'll tell a story. As I said, I was in Florence on May, mm-hmm. and um, the third chapter on reading high uh, Yaksan was about Pico della Mirandola mm-hmm. and in that chapter I you know I was just pulling the strings just following my intuition and, and uh, I think that I discovered you know fascinating a uh, story about homosexual relations, a uh, political um, uh, transformation in 1492 in Florence and then a strong campaign against homosexuality and all these of course. Uh, accumulated to a writing of uh, the Disputationes of Pico against Astrology, in which, of course, he cites uh, the book of of Yaxan. And I was, along the process, I could sense that eventually we have a story between lovers, and it was of course Pico, and Benivieni was his lover at the beginning, but then I think he switched, it, there was a change of hearts there. And he uh, he became a partner of, uh, of uh, Poliziano. But whereas Poliziano was completely open about his sexual uh, uh, tendencies, and Pico was much more, uh, um, uh, much more careful. But what's, what fascinated me along the process are two things. First, reading a letter of Poliziano in which he writes to Pico that he remembers the love songs that he wrote. In which he describes, you know, uh, young boys as sexual objects, and Pico was really embarrassed. And the second thing that I was very lucky that when I started researching on that uh, theme, uh, I read in the Correra de la Sera that the um, uh, few scientists exhumed the bodies of uh, Pico and Poliziano from San Marco. And they uh, passed them, you know, a battery of scientific tests and uh, determined that they were both poisoned. And I said, oh, my God, I'm the first one who's going to write positively that Pico didn't die in 29, like, suddenly. It was just poisoned. And there are reasons for this murder. And there are suspects for this murder. So when I was in Florence uh, on May, I went to look for the tomb of Pico. And I wanted to see exactly, like, uh, I knew that He's buried next to uh, Benivieni. Uh, so there was a mess, It was Sunday. I didn't want to interrupt anybody. And uh, I was standing outside and a priest was walking. And I approached him and I said, listen, I'm looking maybe for an inner uh, uh, court, which, you know, I can find the tomb of Pico della Mirandola. He said, well, it's in the Cathedral in San Marco. Let me show you that. And then he says to me, five years ago, I exhumed the body of Pico. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you, know, you know he was poisoned. And I said, of course I know he was poisoned. <laughs> so yeah. what I think, what I would really be uh, happy, that if uh, from now, uh, now on, people would refer to the death of Pico as a murder. And it's a murder mystery. I try to give you my own uh, intuition uh, of who could be uh, a part of it, or what were the reasons for that? but I would be very happy if you know scholars in the future would look for this very mysterious murder
2: mm-hmm. well- Thank you. That's a very um, it's a very good note to, to end on, I think, as we move forward. Avner, these are two wonderful books. Congratulations, Doubly. Um, and thank you so much for making the time to um, to talk with me about it today. I've had a lot of fun and um, I really look forward to seeing what you come up with next.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Carla. Thank you for the great questions.
2: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society.
0: Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time.